turn your Bibles this morning to Psalm 22 in your Bible. Psalm 22, if you would please. Psalm 22, Caleb read just a bit ago, Matthew 27, considering the cross. He read Matthew's 27's account of the cross, and we will consider, continue that thought this morning out of Psalm 22. We have begin last week, we begin our focus or our look at the cross, the title of the message this morning again is, a survey of the cross. We begin last week, Sunday morning and Sunday evening, looking at the cross, the cross of Christ, His cross. Uh, the Bible describes it. Today we will continue that same focus this morning as well as this evening. As we look to this Easter week and this Easter week ahead and, and then the resurrection Sunday. And really every Sunday, as I said before, is a resurrection Sunday. I won't read... Uh, all of Psalm 22 at this sitting, at this moment, but we will work our way through it as we go. There's so much here, and, and there's so much to consider, but we'll work our way through it in just a few moments, and, and, uh, and so we'll do that as we press on in just a moment. As we think about the cross this morning, or the cross, we think about symbols, uh, symbols that we see all around us. Everywhere you go, you see some sort of symbol um, that represent different things. And when we see these kinds of symbols, they bring to mind different uh, notions, different ideas, some good, some not so good, some pleasant, some not so pleasant, some pleasing, some not so. Uh, you see a symbol of a hammer and a sickle on a flag, you'd immediately cause you to think of communism. Not so good. You, you see a symbol and it brings our mind to a particular area or a particular idea or philosophy. Uh, to see uh, the stars and stripes, um, we would automatically think of America. Patriotism, love of country, national pride. Uh, to see a set of scales, uh, one might think of justice or a court of law. To see a, a red, white, and blue elephant, one would Maybe many times think of the Republican Party, uh, don't you? you? Kind of, yeah, that's the, that's the symbol. Um, the symbol for the Democratic Party is quite fitting, I believe. It's a donkey. Uh, nothing else needs to be said there. We'll just leave that one alone. The Statue of Liberty, you see the Statue of Liberty, and you see, you think about the symbol of freedom. Nearly every time... I see pictures of people, particularly from Asian countries, people from Japan or from China or from the Philippines. I see people holding up two fingers. You've seen those pictures, and they're holding up two fingers. Well, initially, back in the war, uh, this was a sign of victory in World War II. And, and so it was a sign of victory. And then, but yet in the 60s, uh, the hippie crowd came along, and, and they were in opposition to the Vietnam War, so they used it as a sign of peace. So they changed it from victory to an oppositional kind of thing, mentioning peace. Uh, you look at the, the Muslim symbol, and it's a crescent moon and a star. You think of a swastika, uh, a Hitler, Nazism. You think of the Holocaust, or the Holocaust and things going in that direction. You consider the symbol of the Star of David. 
you think of the Jewish people, maybe Judaism, that kind of thing. Um, of course, Judaism does not really fit it within it, but that would be their religion. But you may, it may cause someone to think along those lines. There are many symbols today that cause us to think about specific things, uh, specific ideas, political parties, and even religions. But there's one more symbol, and I've already mentioned that one more symbol that I'd like to consider and call our attention to this morning. It's the symbol of the cross, the symbol of a cross. I often see people who have a cross tattooed upon their bodies. Crosses are worn as jewelry around the neck, as piercings within someone's ears. The cross has been taken to mean many things in our culture. A jeweler uh, might take a cross and he might form that cross and he might form it out of uh, shiny gold or silver and he, he might decorate that cross with diamonds or with all sorts of precious stones. For many a cross is seen as a good luck charm displayed in a home or somewhere that, that might, they might be looking for that good luck. For many the cross is nothing more than a symbol of Christianity of some sort. A symbol of some religion, uh, whether or not they have any interest in it whatsoever. But this morning, I want us to see the cross. Not as a symbol, not as a piece of jewelry, not as a thing of beauty, not as a good luck charm, not as a symbol of religion. This morning, I want us to see the cross as it's described from the Bible. As it's described from the Word of God. I want us to see the cross of Calvary this morning. And I want us to see not only the cross, but I want us to see the one that's upon the cross. The one who suffered there. The one who died there. And the one who rose again, praise God, the third day. This morning as I think about the cross, I'm not talking about a crucifix. Please note the difference. I'm not talking about a crucifix. A crucifix depicts Jesus nailed to a cross. It seems I see crucifixes literally everywhere. Pieces of jewelry. Uh, The Catholic Church holds up the crucifix. Many churches have enormous crucifixes as their main focus within their buildings. Hospitals, you go to Memorial Hospital and you walk down the the hallway and you see crucifixes. You go into the room and over every bed there's a crucifix. The problem with the crucifix is that it depicts Jesus as dead upon the cross. Every crucifix points to a dead Jesus. As though that is the end. As though that's the significance. That of a dead Jesus. And while Jesus did die upon a cross. Jesus did not remain as a dead man upon a cross. No he was buried according to the scriptures. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. A crucifix leaves him dead 
while the Bible talks about many crosses, and there are many crosses found in the Bible concerning Christ, there are no crucifixes to be found concerning Christ in the Bible. A dead religion may leave him there, but a living Christ did not stay there. He is not here, for he is risen. Jesus said in Revelation 1 and 18, I am he that liveth, that's present tense, and was dead, that's past tense, and behold, I am alive forevermore, that's future tense. So this morning, I want us to see the cross. I want us to take a fresh look at the cross. The cross as we consider it this morning, it was devised by the Romans to be a place of suffering, a place of agony, a place of death. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, for the most despised and the hated. It was a place of shame. The criminal would hang there naked upon the cross. There was no decency, there was no decorum with regards to the cross. There was only death and destruction. The cross was a literal place. It was a literal place. Sometimes when we see it and we see a symbol, we often may forget that it was a literal place where a crucifixion, a death and a burial and a resurrection, it was where all of these things encompassed It was where the price and the penalty was paid for our sins. It was a literal place. Matthew calls it Golgotha, a place of the skull. And in Luke chapter 23 and 33, he calls it Calvary. Again, the skull. The cross had a person upon it. Matthew 27 and 37 This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Caleb read it just a little bit ago. As they stood there and as they watched and as they looked upon Christ, as he was up on that cross, there was inscription, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Pilate had written it to sort of goad or to mock the Jews. But it was true. It was true. He's Jesus, the Savior of mankind. The servant savior. He's the king of the universe. He's also the son of God. Sent to take away the sin of the world. Isaac Watts. Composed a soul stirring hymn in 1707. He said when I survey the wondrous cross. On which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. And poor contempt on all my pride. See from his hand. His head, his hands, and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? This morning, I'd like for us to take a survey of the cross. I'd like for us to consider it and know what the Bible has to say about it afresh. The the cross of Christ, the cross with Jesus upon upon it. Uh, not a glance at, of a, of a, but of a survey, but a, of a real survey. Not a gazing, uh, glancing look, but a gazing look. And I want us to know the cross this morning. I want us to consider what it is and what it was and for whom it was. And for our survey, 
I think of no better place to look than the Psalm 22 and see it from this passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, please go to Psalm 22. And I encourage everybody this morning, if you're at home, would you get out your Bibles? Just do not sit and listen to the service. If you're in the Bragg Ministry Center, get out your Bibles. Go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a prophetic hymn. It's a prophetic psalm. It's looking forward. Psalm 22 is written some 1,000 years before the actual event took place. Psalm 22 is, I believe, holy ground. It's called often the Psalm of the Cross. God told Moses as he stood at, in front of that burning bush in the wilderness, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. The Bible gives us many ways, as we look at the cross, the Bible gives us many ways to view the cross or to see the cross. The Old Testament prophets, they looked to it as a future event, something that would come. The gospel narratives, the one that Caleb read this morning, they view the cross from standing at the foot of it and looking up at the cross. And they tell us of all the events that took place there. Paul preached and we preach today the cross. And in our preaching, in Paul's preaching, we look back to the cross. But in Psalm 22, it's a different perspective. It's a perspective like none other. For we see in this psalm, we see in this place, we see Christ hanging upon the cross. We see the perspective of Jesus Christ as he is nailed upon the cross. He's suspended between earth and heaven. We see the perspective of Jesus. These are the very words of Christ, the groanings of Christ, the prayers of Christ, the agonies of Christ as he is upon the cross. As he's hanging there, uh, beaten, bruised, bloodied, his body is there upon the cross. The crown of thorns being platted upon his head, being beaten with a cat of nine tails. The Bible says in Isaiah 52, his visage was marred more than any man. This is the man that was upon the cross. This makes, I believe, Psalm 22 and the things that we see out of it holy ground. And as we come to this passage, I'll admit I've never preached this passage before. And I come before and I look at this passage and all week long and knowing and believing this is where God wanted us this morning. I've considered it and I've read it and I've read it and I've read it. And I've not begun to plumb the depths of all that's found in this passage. There's so much here. As we look at it this morning, we ought to look at it and tread upon this holy ground seriously. Well, look at it somberly this morning as we hear the words while Jesus is up on the cross. In this psalm, we can see it in several different lights. And we see Christ and he's up on the cross. And we see it literally from the perspective of Jesus Christ. Not the gospel narrative looking up, not the prophet looking forward, not our preaching look back. But Jesus as he's hanging there, it's his perspective. And we can see it in this psalm, he, his perspective, he looks up and he cries out as he's on the cross. He looks down 
He looks at the people that are surrounding the cross. He looks down at those that are around him at the cross. While on the cross, he also looks at himself, the cruelty of his sufferings. And on the cross, and we look at this passage on the cross, he looks beyond the cross. The glories that will follow. Read the psalm together this morning. And as we read this psalm, I just want to read it and make a few comments as we move forward this morning. As we move forward in our text or out of our text. So I want you to follow along. As we follow along, I'm going to ask you to hear the the words of the cross. And and see the sights of the cross. And if you would please, would you put yourself there. The Bible tells us that is. Those people that were listening, they, they, they hear the, the mutterings and the groanings and the agony of Jesus. And they, and they hear him say, maybe he's thirsty. Maybe we'll get him something to drink. Or he said this, and maybe he cried out for Elijah, and so and so on. But this is what Jesus was actually saying upon the cross. He starts out in verse number 1 of Psalm number 22. Caleb read it just a bit earlier out of Matthew 27. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatani. My God, my God, why? Here in this very first phrase, when he mentions my God, my God, consider the relationship of Jesus Christ as he cries out, as he looks up from the cross and he cries out to his heavenly Father, the relationship of Jesus to his heavenly Father. My God, my God. The Son cries out to his Father. My God, my God, why, he says. Why? The reason here. Oh, we could stop here and and, and literally just preach for hours on the whys of the cross the whys of the cross my God my God why the reason and again I'd love to stop here and consider all the whys of the cross there are so many answers to the whys but let me just simply say sin is a why sin is a why the breaking of God's law is a why the breaking of God's laws, the Bible tells us, whether there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Why of the cross? The sin is a why. Love is a why. My God, my God, why? Love is a why. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Substitution is a why. This is Jesus. The sin of the world is placed upon him. Substitution is a why. Uh, who is he substituting for? For all those who will put their faith and trust in him. Substitution. That's a why. Him for us. His life for my life. Salvation is a why. Salvation is why. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Why? My God, my God, why? Salvation is a why. God came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou? Why hast thou? You're my father, my father, my faithful friend. 
Let me ask you, who killed Jesus? Did sinners kill Jesus? Yes. Do we have a hand in killing Jesus? Yes. Are we sinners? Yes. Sinners killed Jesus. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Yes. Did Judas kill Jesus? Yes. But God did it as well. God killed Jesus. God the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou? Isaiah 53 and 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when, he, uh, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. God the Father. Eternity past. A council with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Before any of us were ever even created. Before this world was put in place. God knew what would take place. And they knew that there would be a Redeemer. The Godhead knew this. And Jesus said, I'll go. I'll go. I'll be the one. I'll be the servant. I'll go. And it pleased the Lord. There must be a payment for sin. God knew that sin would come. God knew that rebellion would be here. He knew our hearts. He knew what we would do. He, would knew, he knew our wickedness. Not only sinners by birth, but sinners by choice. And God knew and sin must be paid for. The breaking of God's law cannot be overlooked. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The emphasis there in this time, consider the emphasis is on me. My God, my God, why me? Why me? Your only begotten son. Your only begotten son. The one that you cried from heaven among the crowds. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 53. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Laid on him. Why me God? Laid on him the iniquity of us all. Surely he hath borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. My God, my God, why me? Then we come to that passage and we see that other part of that verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only was the wrath of God being poured out upon the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, but the forsaken Son of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We begin to read our text this morning. We begin, first of all, I want you to note, out of verses number 1 through 6, we see a great forsakening. A great forsakening out of verses 1 through 6. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. The words of my roaring. He says, my roaring, I can only imagine that a man under this agony and under this pain and under this stress, the words are literally roaring out of his lips from the bottom of his heart. He's roaring. It's though he is screaming out and crying out in agony. His words have become a roaring in agony and pain. He says, my cries 
I've cried out. My cries, in verse number 2, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, and thou hearest not. In the night season am I not silent. My cries, he says, thou hearest not. A great forsakening. My roaring and my cries, thou hearest not. He says he cries out to God. He prays to God in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, and the Bible tells us that his sweat became as great drops of blood. Spurgeon said with regards to this crying out to the Lord. For our prayers to appear to be unheard is no new trial. We pray and it seems as God does not answer the prayer. For our prayers to be unheard seem to appear to be unheard is no new trial. For Jesus felt it before we ever did. Jesus cried out to the heavenly father and he felt it before we ever did. But in the trial, I want you to note, but in the trial, he did not turn from God. He held fast to God. In the trials, when the trials come, and none of us have ever been under this kind of trial from God, the wrath of God poured out upon us. We go through trials, but none of us have ever been here. And so often, and maybe in a trial, we pray and we, it appears that God does not answer our prayers or He doesn't answer them in a timely fashion. And so often people will literally walk away from God and do away with God. But He says in verse number 3, But thou art holy. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Thou art holy. Even on the cross, he did not speak ill of God. He did not speak ill of God. He did not say, God, you're a mean God. He did not reach out and lash out against God. He said, God, you did no ill. You're holy. Can you imagine upon the cross? You know, in your mind's eye and in your heart, there may be times when you're going through a difficulty in your life. It seems like God's not hearing and God's not answering prayer. And then we get that voice. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't care about you. If he really cared about you, he'd fix your situation. If he really cared about you, he'd come along and take you out of this mess. If he really cared about you, if he really loved you, like the Bible says, you wouldn't be here. We begin to listen to that. Can you imagine Jesus upon the cross? You went through all of this for nothing. All of this for naught. Was it worth the pain? Is it worth the suffering? Is it worth the agony? Is it worth the forsaking? And Jesus comes back. And he answers. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And Jesus comes back in verse number 3. And he says, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. There is no ill will in God. Thou art holy and your purposes are holy. Your purpose in this end is holy. Thou art holy completely. There is no uprightness in you. In verses number 4 and 5, we again consider the forsaking. Jesus as he's on the cross and he's looking up into heaven. And he says, our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou deliverest, didst deliver them. 
they cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Our fathers trusted. They cried. And God, you came along and you delivered them. The prayers of the saints have always, it's those God is saying, the prayers of the saints have always been answered by you, God. You've always been true and faithful. You've always been there for your people. God has not left. He did not leave your people. They've always gotten his attention. The prayer of God's people have always gotten his attention. Grace and mercy have always been to, from God to his people. They cried out. You delivered them. But then notice the contrast. This is Jesus upon the cross. And he's praying to the Father. He says, but I am a worm. But I am a worm. God, you answered, you delivered, but I am a worm, he says. And no man. I'm a worm and no man. I'm forsaken. Here, notice the great I am. In the Gospels, we turn time and time again where Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, and I am. But here in this passage, as he's up on the cross, he says, I am a worm. What language is this? I am a worm. As a worm. What is a worm? A worm is the, the, the lowest, the most helpless of all of God's creation. I am a worm, he says. Helpless, powerless. A worm is simply something that's crushed. Something that's crushed. No man looks at a worm. Nobody looks at a worm with admiration. Worms are, well, worms. They're rejected. They're despised. Worms are crushed under the feet and the foot of men. I know recently in all the storms in, in, in our edge of our driveway and, and you lift up the garage door and I noticed on all the rain all the worms that were there. Have you noticed this? You get in your car and you drive out. You walk out and you crush them. Jesus the spotless Son of God says, I'm a worm. Worms are crushed under the foot of men. Worms are crushed. When worms are crushed, you know they squirm in pain, but they do not strike back. Worms do not strike back. If it's a two-foot rattlesnake, you step on that one, he's going to reach back and he's going to take hold. But Jesus is a worm. He's crushed under the load. He does not strike back. When in reviled, he did not revile in return. We see the great forsakening. Not only do we see a great forsakening, but out of verses 7 and 8, we see a great mocking. A great mocking. Verses 7 and 8, I'm forsaken, despised, rejected, a reproach. In verse 7, the great mocking. As Jesus is up on the cross, he's been looking up to, to heaven, to the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then, now at this point, he looks down at the crowd. He listens, he looks down at the crowd around the cross. 
He says, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighteth in him. The great mockery, the mockery, he looked down. And, and, and we read the passage earlier, Caleb did out of Matthew 28. They looked up at Jesus. You said you'd tear down the temple in three days and build it again. Come down from the cross. Can't you hear them? Come down from the cross. You believe that God would save you? Come down. Why don't you come down? They mocked him as he was upon the cross. The Bible says that they came by and as they walked by, they shoot out the lip. They made faces at him. They made faces at him. They mocked him. They made fun of him as he was up on the cross. We see a great forsaking. We see a great mocking out of verses 7 8. But we also see out of verses 9 through 11 a great reliance. Out of all of this, we see a great reliance. Jesus is up on the cross. You can imagine that his heart and his mind begins to trace back to the time when the incarnation is. He comes into the world. And he came into the world to save sinners. He took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. His mind goes back to that time out of verse number 9 through 11. A great reliance. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was under, upon, excuse me, my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Jesus, even again, in all the agony, in all the pain, there's a great reliance God, I've always relied upon you. God, you've never let me down. You'll not let me down here. But God, there's great trouble. And they're all around me as I see them all around me. There's great things that are taking place. There's a great reliance. And there's a great anguish out of verses 12 through 18. There's a great anguish as Jesus, as he's looking down, as he's seeing these people around the cross, these Roman soldiers. There's a great anguish out of verses 12 through 18. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Basham have beset me round. These bulls are pictures of strength and of might. These bulls, they're like bulls that have gathered around up under the cross. He says, they gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I imagine that he was in the place in, in Pilate's chambers, in Herod's chambers, as he was being beaten. And as they put a crown of thorns upon his head, put a reed upon his hand, and they put that scarlet robe upon him. I imagine as they beat upon him, possibly some came by and even bit upon our Savior. The Bible tells us they spit upon him. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a, as a wild and roaring lion. He says, I am poured out like water. Now he's up on the cross. He says, I am poured out like water. Great anguish. And at this point, it's as though Christ, he's looked up, he's looked down, and now he's looking at himself. 
He's looking at himself. He says out of verse number 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. There's nothing left. There's no energy. There's no strength. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He says out of verse number 16. He notices his body. And he says out of verse number 16. The dogs. The dogs have compassed me. He mentioned the bulls that are around. But he mentions dogs here. These are dogs. What, what kind of dogs? I, I don't know. But he mentions dogs. And, and I, I, I can only think of. I remember being as a young boy up in the hills of Virginia, and I never had any, but I used to uh, run around with some fellas that had coon dogs. Coon dogs. Hounds. And these old hounds, we'd go out in the night, and, and they'd let the hounds go. They'd just let them run. And we'd sit there, and in a little bit, you hear a, a hound bark. Boy, off in the distance, you hear them bark. And you'd hear another one bark, and you hear another one bark. And you'd go towards the sound. You kept going toward the sound. And these old coon dogs, they would, they would tree a, a coon. And they would be at the base of that coon, uh, that tree. And that coon would be up in that tree for fear of those dogs. And those dogs would be barking and barking. And it was so loud that you'd have to get it. And literally you'd have to beat the dogs off of the tree. Jesus says, the dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. The dogs, they've done this. They pierce my hands. These are the same hands that Jesus touched the blind man. That Jesus lifted up the man at the pool of Bethesda. These are the same hands that healed. These are the same hands that created. He says, now they've pierced my hands and my feet. He says, I tell all my bones, and they look and they stare upon me. I tell all my bones, here Jesus is naked on the cross. My bones, they can see, everything is exposed. Now they undressed. They don't understand, it's a matter of shame. The world undresses itself. Before the world, and it's a matter of shame, Jesus says, they tell all my bones. It's a thing of shame as he hangs upon the cross. They tell all my bones, and they look, and they stare upon me. Great agony. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. As Jesus is hanging upon the cross, he looks down, and he sees Roman soldiers in the, the, the garment that he had on. He now sees these Roman soldiers gambling. Don't ever say that gambling's for the good of the people. Jesus saw it. And they were gambling at the foot of the cross. Gambling at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine? They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Great forsaking, great mocking, great reliance, great anguish. Verses 19 and 21, great deliverance. Great deliverance. Be, but be 
not thou far from me, O Lord, all my strength. Haste thou to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Before it was the dogs, now it's the dog, it's a dog. I believe this is a reference to the devil himself. He did not leave his soul in hell. Jesus, by the way, I don't believe went to hell. Jesus went to the grave, but he came up out of that grave. Some would say that he went to hell during this time. I believe Jesus certainly went to the grave. He says, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. What is this darling here? Uh, It's hard to really know exactly. But maybe it's the bride of Christ. Deliver my soul from the sword and my darling. Why did Jesus come? He came for a bride. He came to call out a bride to himself. My darling from the power of the dog. Uh, Peter, I've prayed for you. But you fail not. In this world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Save me from the lion's mouth. Verse 21 For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. Save me. Here Jesus, he's literally entering in. It's the last breaths. He's literally entering in to death. Save me from the lion's mouth. And thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. I don't understand that unicorn thing. I can't help you in that one. When we get to heaven, we'll get it all figured out though. It'll be okay. Looking forward to that. We see a great deliverance. Jesus is ready to die. But before he dies, I want you to notice a great praise. Out of verses 22 through 26, we see a great praise. This is Jesus as he's up on the cross. He's looked up from Calvary's trees, looked up at heaven. He's looked down. He's looked at himself. And now he begins to look forward. He begins to look out. And look what he says out of verses 22 through 26. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Yea, ye that fear the Lord, praise him. Notice the praises out of verse 22. Notice again in verse number 23. Praise him, all ye the seed of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor poured the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. He's now looking forward. Now he's looking back to the, from the cross. He's looking forward to a great praise. In verses 27 and through 29 we see a great victory. A great victory that comes out of the cross. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. 
And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is the governor among the nations. Right now they don't recognize him, but one day they will. All they that be fat upon the earth, or those that have great blessings, shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive on Excuse me, keep alive his own soul. It's only by the mercy and the grace of God. Here we see great victory, but there's one more. In verses 30 and 31, we see great salvation. Great salvation. A seed shall serve him. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come. And shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. That shall be born. They're going to come and they're going to declare that Jesus is righteous. That Jesus is king. That he's king. He's Lord of lords and king of kings. This week we'll enter into a missions conference. We're part of that people, we're part of that seed that will declare His righteousness. As we gather together this week, we'll pray and ask God to use us so that we might declare His righteousness unto a people that shall be born. The people that are around the world, they shall be born. There's great salvation and that salvation has come to all men. All men. And then he finishes it with this. That he hath done this. That he hath done this. It just sums it all up. Puts everything. He brings the whole psalm into that last phrase. He hath done this. Great forsakening. Great mocking. Great reliance. Great anguish. Great deliverance, great praise, great victory, great salvation. He hath done this. Wow. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. May we never see the cross as we have in the past. May we never see the next time we see a a symbol. May it just not simply just come and go. He hath done this. So what do we do? We declare the cross. We declare the cross to a lost and dying world. And for those who are unsaved, they receive the cross in order to be saved. I go back to the hymn and I'm done. Isaac Watts penned so many years ago. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Forbid it, Lord, that I would say I could save myself. Forbid it, Lord, that I could say that I did anything. Forbid it, Lord, that in my pride I would say I would not need God in his cross. Forbid it, Lord, that that I would reject the cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I'd not be a part of the declaring of the cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. But it's only in the cross of Jesus Christ that I have anything to boast. 
Were the whole realm of nature mine, it were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. What does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to the church? Is it a piece of jewelry? Is it just a symbol of Christianity? Is it a good luck charm? Or have we come to the place where we see that He hath done this? And we put away all boasting. We put away all sin. We put away all things that would keep us from living a godly life for Jesus Christ. From coming to Him and receiving His so great a salvation. It would keep us from the next time we're going through trials that we would start to doubt God. That we would even utter the thoughts. That we would allow the, to entertain the thoughts that God has left me here. No one has ever been left but Jesus Christ. And He was left only because of our sin. And for our substitution. The cross changes everything. When we get a biblical view of it. Psalm 22. Christ upon the cross. Upon the cross. What great words. What a great transaction. He hath done this. Has He done it for you? Have you received Him? If not, I invite you to come and receive Him. Is He calling you to live for Him? I invite you to come and live for Him. Is He calling you to surrender some area of life, some sin? I invite you to come and surrender it. He's worthy. He hath done this. Let's bow our hearts in prayer.